Welcome everyone to episode seven of the Paramedic Podcast. It comes with great delight to share with you that we have reached 2,000 listeners in 15 different countries. We've covered some really interesting topics and spoken to some incredibly inspirational paramedics who have bravely shared their stories with you all. Today we are going to circle back to episode three, where my friend and fellow paramedic Troy came on to discuss his family's story, in particular Troy's son Flynn, who after passing donated his organs and went on to save and change many lives. This got me thinking, organ donation, the process and a paramedic's mindset relating to it is something I know little about. And I figured if I know little, perhaps others don't know as well. And so I decided it was time to talk about it. Questions like, who is a good candidate for organ donation and how can paramedics shift in mindset from this patient isn't viable for themselves, but may be viable for organ donation later down the track? How do we find this out or how do we have a conversation? How many lives can a viable body save? And how do you become an organ donor? Uh, organ donor? Today we are joined by Tina Coco, the State Manager and Nursing Director for Donate Life Queensland, based at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane, and the Hollowell family with Mother Anna and Father Ken of Little Thomas, who is here today because of a life-saving transplant. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but Thomas is the only known survivor of an extremely rare condition called empty liver syndrome. That we know of. Yeah, and at Three weeks, he was three weeks, wasn't he, um, received a liver transplant with the help of Donate Life Queensland. Yes. Um, so let's begin our discussion on giving the gift of life. So uh, Tina, Ken and Anna, welcome and thanks so much for coming. It's such a wonderful, wonderful journey that you've all been on together and helping lives all around um, all around Australia. For having us. Um, Thank you. But firstly, I'd like to start with you, um, Ken and Anna. If you're able to tell our listeners the story, your family's story and little Thomas. From the beginning? Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> um, so perfect pregnancy. He was a dream to carry. Um, he's number five of now six. Um, and he was born 39 weeks just due to the Commonwealth Games and we were told that the traffic was going to be crazy hectic so we were to go up and have him a week early so mm -hmm. we could be booked in and the other kids could be cared for um he arrived normal perfect um needed oxygen probably for the first 45 minutes um when he was born but other than that we were sent home with nothing to work like what we thought nothing to worry about um we had him home for two weeks and he then started on day 12 just vomiting um every time he fed he just vomited everything up um so that was on the monday by the wednesday morning i took him up to gold coast hospital after a phone call to one three health and said, explained what happened and they said look you're not a first time mom you kind of if you're getting the feeling then just take him for a checkup you know what's the worst they can do is just send you home and everything's fine so we did that and that's when we were probably there for a couple of hours and then chaos started getting it would get a bit crazy and Well, you more... had originally took him because it was um, slightly jaundiced as well. Well, I'd noticed the whites of his eyes had gone a bit, little bit yellow. Mm -hmm. And I said to Ken about it and he was like, oh, no, I think it's just the light. You know, you know he, he looks fine. I think it's just the light. You're just catching it wrong. And I was like, oh, this isn't, you know, and he was still quite red. And jaundice obviously doesn't normally happen when they're two weeks old. Mm -hmm. So 
that's when, yeah, just sort of a few things started adding up and then we, I popped him up to the hospital. And then, yeah, there for a couple of hours in um, emergency and it just started getting a bit hectic and with more nurses coming in and more doctors not leaving us. And that's when I started thinking, well, hang on, this is maybe a bit more serious than we think it might just be a bit of, you know, uh, jaundice. So the next thing we were um, admitted upstairs, we were up there for only a couple of hours. um, And again, not really told anything, just told that they were taking blood and checking him over and keeping him stable and still not really understanding what was happening. And then the next thing we're being bundled into an ambulance and ambulanced up to um, Lady Salento Children's Children's Queensland Hospital. and then I had to leave him. The nurse grabbed me and said, look, I think you need some sleep. I hadn't slept for nearly three days. And one doctor came to me and was like talking, trying to talk to me about liver failure. And I'm like, what is going on? It was like an almost out-of-body experience thinking this isn't happening to me. Like you, this is what happens on the TV. And then so the next morning we were told he'd go under the um, – blue lights because his bilirubin was really really high and his um, urine was just black Um, and then that was on the Thursday by the Friday he was intubated and we were warned that he might need a liver transplant they weren't sure so they popped him on the list just in case but it wasn't urgent and then within 12 hours we were in that horrid room where they get everyone together I don't it's the room that you don't want to be in with every single specialist in every department and they then told us that he'd been put up at the top of the list nationally. It was uh, an urgent um, request for a liver and they were going to take whatever was available um, and we basically had 48 hours. So that was on the Saturday. And then That's we got, terrifying. It was, yeah, you're thrown in a nightmare and it's, again, an out-of-body experience because we also had four other children that we were obviously having to juggle as well and... Then, what, Monday, I think it was like five o'clock in the afternoon and we got the phone call to say they'd found um, a liver. It wasn't the best, but it was all we had. And by Tuesday, he was exactly three weeks three weeks old and he was taken for his liver transplant and leaving us not knowing, obviously, what was going to be the outcome. So, but he, tough little boy that he is <laughs> went through fighting and uh, came out and we were told that he was a lot worse than he actually looked on the outside um he was they didn't even know how he really survived because he, he was so so sick and um they still didn't know cause at the time what was happening what was going on with him because they went they went to transplant his liver looked perfect it was perfect on the outside looked beautiful like as if nothing was wrong but they obviously were like what his levels are wrong you know his levels aren't um what they should be so obviously they went ahead with the transplant Mm -hmm. um they we didn't find out what about four weeks yeah he had to to go through pathology and um peter hodgkinson he he was a surgeon um his friend was like one of the top pathologists in the world and he lived in brisbane so he, he sent it to him and he, when, he's, when he's looked at it, there's, there's no liver cells in it at all, right? So that's, he's never seen it before. And um, he actually said, look, I haven't got a clue what, what this is about. I'll, I'll put it out to some of my colleagues. 
and they did. And one said, like, we've done papers on this um, in Quebec. There was one there in, I think it was 94. Um, and the child didn't survive. And then also one in Rome as well. And that, that baby didn't survive either. Um, I can't remember if that one actually did, did you try his transplant on that one and it didn't, it didn't take. Um, so, at what point did you get this information? This, this is oh, this, was this like after the fact. This is about eight, four, or maybe even six weeks post when you had when he was doing when he was improving. Well, yeah, when he was improving. When you got this information. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. He was still on dialysis. I think, yeah. Well, the, the, with the operation that he had, um, he actually had to go on dialysis because the kidneys stopped working, so the liver wasn't working. So it was like we just put him through this, and nothing's. Nothing's working. So they then put him on dialysis. As soon as the dialysis kicked in, everything started working. You know what I mean? All the toxins were relieved from his body. The liver started to work then because the toxins were all coming out of his body. They're like absolutely fantastic. And then you could see the improvement. You know what I mean? It was just like unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable that was. Maybe he received, was it two thirds of an adult liver? Well, he, he, no, he, he got a third of an adult liver because the, the liver went on to um, three operations. Um, but a third of that third that he had died off because his body wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough blood flow mm-hmm. going around his body. Um, so that died. And he was actually open because you just couldn't fit it all in. Yeah, you see, tiny, be, tiny, yeah, tiny. Yeah, yeah, so it had to actually had to be a, a certain size to make it viable. And yeah, so he was open there for a couple uh, Two weeks. They did a partial close, and then after two weeks, then they managed to close it up. Um, it it did go necrotic, so they did actually have to do a couple of drains on on that. But um, yeah, that that was all that was all good after that. But that's um, one liver saving p- three, three people. people. Yeah, as far as we know. And um, yeah, from there, everything was. Was good. It was improving. Oh, back, it improving. was back and forth a lot. It was a lot of back and forth. You t- you felt like you're taking, you know, four steps forward and then ten steps back because he'd get an infection or he'd, it was on back on on and off dialysis for what six weeks, and um, because the kidneys were just like, yeah, we had two weeks of overworking, like we're out, mm. we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so they went on holiday for about six weeks, yeah. and um, there was a lot of flushing of uh, everything, and and in the end, the doctor d- one day just went, you know what, let's flush it with what's the um, Flurizamide? Fluris, fluris, no, Flurizamide, uh, I think it was. That, that, that makes you, makes you wee. Yeah, Flurizamide. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, at one point, you see, before that happened, they'd actually said to me, look, you need to see the specialist, but you might need a kidney transplant for him um, because they're just not working. But he's had these tests done. The blood's flowing to the kidneys. Fine. Mm-hmm. They're just not working. He said, but I'm not a specialist. Specialist coming down, and that's when he's gone down. He's looked to me. He's actually threw the paper. <laughs> threw the paperwork away. He said, "Yeah." <laughs> and just went. That's pumping it through, through his mind, and we'll we'll get him working. And literally, he did it, and he kicked just him off. smashed the kidneys with kicked that stuff, off, and yeah. then that was it. Yeah. And that was it. They were working. He was off dialysis, and everything was good from there. Mm, yeah, the little little. We, we, we yeah. had a few little niggles in between. Is is, yeah. Um, so we we ended up going to the upper ward there after the you know transplants, um, and the doctor got end of the week. You can go home. It's like that. Well, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. You going home on the end of the week. That's fantastic. 
That would have been an amazing feeling for you guys because oh, yeah. yeah. just whole a little life in yeah. hospital. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, they see they've been working him off his his, um, his medications and everything mm. like that, and then they showed me how to do it and everything. Um, but the the only the only problem that was there at, at the end of the week when I was supposed to be going, I had been across the McDonald's house, I'd been staying there, and um, the gastro doctor was in and she said I didn't like his breathing, so I put him on high flow. It's like, oh, what's this now? So when they, when they found out, um, his lung had collapsed. His bowel had actually taken up the space. And what had happened is the actual staples on his diaphragm, uh, on, on his liver, actually rubbed through the diaphragm. So he got a diaphragmatic hernia. Oh, goodness. And that took the Which space. Pushed his <laughs> but the only thing is, it didn't actually show up on any ultrasounds or an X-ray. Then that's what it was. So they thought it was just a damaged diaphragm. Okay? They didn't realize it was a hernia. So the... They originally going to keep him on high flow for a certain length of time, but they couldn't keep him going through his nose for that time. So they were going to put a, um, a trachea yeah. in. And I said, oh, please, just don't do not do that. Really don't do that. And it had been long enough then, or just about long enough, that they could go back in the same scar area. So they've opened him up. They've got to do application. So that would be like just a pleated curtain, turn it down the diaphragm and let everything come down. And when they've opened it up, they've actually found the diaphragmatic hernia. So then they repaired it. So it wasn't as bad an operation. Um, and it and was then, all Yeah, done. after that, then he just, just kept getting better and better. And yeah. Just, yeah. yeah and, and, and it just uh, like early on, um, we had a few infe ear infections. Mm. Um, couple over the first year and that. And then mm. they had grommets put in. That all stopped. Going into hospitals basically stopped, mm. and then we had a few because he's immune suppressed. Uh, if he gets a cold or a, you know, he'll get like about three viruses mm -hmm. rather than the one. So he then has um, after after thirty seven degrees for for Thomas, we've got to present to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it was going up to thirty eight, thirty nine. You know, and uh, we've gone in. Massive doses of antibiotics because they got static straight away just in case it's the liver, mm -hmm. and then they work out from there what the rest of the, any any problems is. But we've we've been pretty good. Um, yeah, we, he's he's been fine really in the yeah. last sort of twelve months. He's been last twelve months. He's and how old is he now? He's three and a half. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Sweet. And he's a bruiser. Like he's fearless. Absolutely fierce. I just saw him outside with oh. his big work boots yeah. on, ready for the park. <laughs> always yeah. Yeah. He always wears his work boots. He's always ready, ready yeah. to work. He looked ready. That's he it. did. He definitely but he's, did. Yeah, he, he continuously tests us and and with his strength and just termination of life mm. and just, mm. yeah, he's, he try, he'll try anything. He'll do anything. And you just think, I can't wrap him up in cotton wool. He's got to live his life. No. Well, I mean, he, so. he, gets, he gets eczema. Um, he's got a few allergies, could, could be due to different this and that, we don't know. Um, but apart from that, he's just a naughty little boy. <laughs> That's been right? yeah. so very cheeky. If, if you didn't see the scars, you, you wouldn't know. Yeah. You know, he's, he's a, just a, a smidge shorter. Yeah, he's a little you bit know. smaller and a little bit lighter than his peers. That's all right. There's nothing wrong with being yeah. short. Yeah, I'm short. Is he? <laughs> I'm short. All good things come in small packages. That's right. <laughs> his two-year-old sister's about as big as him and weighs four kilos heavier than him. But, yeah. <laughs> but so um, when yeah. you guys went through all of this process and stuff, were you were you involved with all that, Tina, with these guys? 
not directly with transplantation yeah. as the organ donation agency yeah. refer yeah. the donated organs to the transplant units and they accept those organs. Okay. Uh, in the situation where he was listed urgently, yeah. that means that Donate Life would have put a call out to every state and territory in Australia and New Zealand and said, we have a category one baby that needs a liver transplant, which means that every state and territory, whoever gets a, a, a donor first, must make that offer to us. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And we and that's what the urgent listing's about. So it's a call to the nation that there's a category one person, and that yeah. could be a child or an adult. It's not just specifically for children. Um, and that they have to offer us that organ and we have to make sure it does match, like there are special considerations like blood group. And if it's not a size match um, and if it's an adult donor and it's a child, something that's done routinely in this country and around the world is cutting down or splitting an adult liver and using a portion for children. Yeah, and, and that's, that's what happened here. And that's, yeah. Yeah. And that's actually the way most children mm-hmm. get transplanted because... All I can say is, thank God, not many children are dying and having to become donors because mm. that would be the worst case scenario. Mm. But we don't want children dying on the waiting list either. Mm-hmm. So this is a surgical technique which actually was developed in Brisbane in the late 80s um, wow. at Princess Alexandra Hospital by Professor Russell Strong. And we did the first living-related liver transplant, which is, you know, able to save children because he learned and discovered how to safely reduce the size of an adult liver to fit a tiny baby. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Mm. And that one liver saved, it was at three, well, it was given to three. Yeah. I, and it, and it, I can't give details right, of that. Right, sorry. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it, yeah, obviously the, the one um, mm. adult liver can actually go on and, and help. We like to think that it saved three people. Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, okay. for us, it's because we have our Thomas, we like to think that. It, that very special person and liver yeah. has gone on to save, th- mm. you know, Thomas and two other people. So. Yeah. So as as um, a family that's that's received um, a, an incredible gift, like when you got that news, um, how how did that feel? Um, the only way I can explain it is literally like an out of body experience. Yeah. I was looking and watching everything happening, and we had to have a friend with us because. Ken is very emotional and he was in the corner just dealing with it. And <laughs> <laughs> right on cue. Yeah, um, yeah. And you had, you know, you've got like five or six specialists in front of you all telling you this one thing. And our friend had to come with us and just listen for us because you, you sat there and you're, they're telling you, but you're like, it's like a scene from a movie. You just don't. You're like, this happens to other people. This doesn't happen to people like mm. us. We've got four healthy children. Why have we got one that suddenly not, you know, needs all this? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we had to then, you know, once that was said to you, then you get left with this news. It's just like, well, what do we do now? Mm. And then luckily our friend was with us and she retells you everything and all the details that they'd said. And then you're like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? What have we got to do now? What's going to happen right now? And then you kind of get thrown into a bit of a morbid thought process of, okay, well, this person's obviously got to be fairly healthy, whoever's going to donate, and they've got to not be damaged from, like, you know, the torso. That's got to be all intact. And you get these all these weird thoughts running through your head of, like, how is someone going to be able to help our son survive, potentially losing their own life and it's a very it's a very weird thought process it's a very weird time 
because mm. you like obviously you want you you just want your child to survive. Mm. And we had a lot of questions actually when we were given the transplant. Did it come from a child? Did it come from a, a baby? And and obviously we know, you know we know it didn't. But everyone that came in and saw him or spoke to us or friends, family, they didn't realise the process that you can get an adult liver and have it break, you know, cut up and save. I didn't people. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So until you're in that moment. Mm. There's information that people still don't know mm. and it's just incredible that now we do know that and obviously it pushes us even more to be, you know, getting people to, um, to support the, the... Yeah, let's talk about yeah, it. Exactly. Let's get people to, to know about yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah and it's, it's a it's a medical world that we had never once saw ourselves in and mm. then, yeah, once you're in it, um, it's definitely something you never forget. And Yeah, but it's like with, with, with the donation thing, I've never wanted to do it. Right, mm-hmm. I've always, you know, when you die, you, you go intact and everything like that. Once this happened, we put our, we got oh, straight, straight away. Up. That was my straight next away. question. Straight yeah. away, if all of you. Well, guys we actually, are... at the time of being told that he may need, like it was the may need the transplant. So on the Friday, it was a may need a transplant. We both said, well. Take some of us. Mm. Well, we don't need it all. Yeah. Take some of, and they then. Well, they, they said it would take weeks anyway, but. It could kill us doing it. They would rather take it from a donation, you know, um, because you, you, there's two lives there that are possibly be lost mm-hmm. rather, you know, um, than saving any any life at all. Whereas a donation, um, you've got more chance of surviving, you know, the the the, the, the person, the recipient needed, you know, who needs it to survive. Mm-hmm. And then okay. we needed it so quick. Yeah. So, because it went from may need a transplant on the Friday to within 12 hours on the Saturday, he's at the top of the list, he needs it now, it's, you know, we need it as soon as possible. Because I was, I was there, well, you know, they regenerate, can they not just, can you not just wait a week? Can you not just, <laughs> Yeah. Wait? He well, was because I didn't realise, yeah. you know what I mean, because I, I know livers regenerate and stuff mm. like that, you know, and it was, yeah, well, we'll, we'll put, we can, we, we can wait, we just, yeah. we'll put him on the list, you know what I mean, we'll, we'll just... Get everything ready. Get the ball rolling. Apart from it's he needed it. You yeah. know what I mean. He needed it because he would. That would that would have been it. Mm. And um, we, what we have missed out is like they had to check to the different these different types of liver failure. Um, I can't remember the names of them, but he said there's one like energy packets. He said there's best way to describe it. He said it could knock your liver out. He said and they could fix that. He said then it knocks your kidneys or your heart. You know, or, or your brain. And then it's a waste of time putting him through that and then realistically wasting, you know, the, the donation. Mm. So they checked, they, they did uh, some checks on his brain and everything like that. And they said, no, it's, it's not that. So that's when he's going straight on that list, that national mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was just unbelievable how quick. It, well, it, it seemed like a lifetime oh, waiting to find, was, yeah. for him to find a donor. But then it was so quick as well. You know, it was, right, well, this, this is happening then. Monday. We, sorry. We may <laughs> we may have the donor, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But we'll, we, they're not quite sure. They weren't quite sure if we actually did have the of the organ. Or even if the organ was going to be... Um, Available. Uh, we, they weren't well, sure. good no, as well, because no. it was, you know, like I said, at the time, it wasn't... It was the best of the... It, well, it's not. The, it, it, was it was the best, best that was available. Was available. Yeah. yeah. So all all we know is that they did have to fly, and the recovery team had to go and get it. 
and then it was brought back and it was done the following morning, the Tuesday morning. You don't get told much information, no. which I think at the time was probably a good thing because you just concentrate on your everything's going into wanting and hoping. Obviously, your uh, you know child is going to survive. So mm-hmm. And then I think it's only probably last year when we did our first interview that we kind of sit back and think, well, what about that family? You know, mm-hmm. what about their family? I hope they know that whoever donated has gone on to save, you know, the people that he, they have gone on to save. What a beautiful gift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, but like like I said, I said before, if if it was wasted being buried, that, that person's living on in somebody else, mm-hmm. but there's always that little, little bit, you know, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, that I, Troy, um, the paramedic who came in and had discussed his son and how his son donated, um, you know, organs and things like that and, and helped people, that really helped him, you know, with with knowing that not for nothing, you know. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful to have you guys come in and, and have the other end of the spectrum talking about how you were recipients and how your little Thomas in his work boots ready to take <laughs> on the world has survived because of organ donation. Yeah. And it's really amazing. It's it's beautiful to see how we can, you know, we can do that. And, and Tina, I'll probably um, bring you in here now. Um, if you're happy to introduce yourself um, and your role with um, Donate Life Queensland and, and have a chat about sure. yeah, Thank you. all that sort of Thanks, stuff. Thanks, yeah. um, Well, I've worked in organ and tissue donation for some 30 years now. Um, it's a passion of mine to care for the donors and their families in ICU mm-hmm. and to make sure that we provide the opportunity to every family where donation is suitable, medically suitable, that that's an opportunity for them. So we have specialist nurses and doctors who who are specially trained to talk to families and support them in the ICU to help them make that decision. As you can imagine, it's the, the darkest day of their lives. And just sitting here listening to Ken and Anna, it's, you know, it's a two-edged sword. One family's tragedy is another family's hope mm-hmm. on the same night. So how does a recipient family feel when they know that someone else has um, lost someone but they've made that decision to support possibly their wishes to be a donor mm-hmm. and help save up to seven lives um, in that one event. But, um, yeah, so organ donation is something that people often don't realise. It's a very rare occurrence. So less than 2% of all deaths in Australian hospitals, people are actually suitable to donate. So it's a very small number. In Australia last year, that 463 people went on to organ donation in Australia. So that's a very small number. In Queensland, 86 people went on to organ donation. So it is it because organ donation means to be an organ donor, not necessarily a tissue donor because the circumstances are a little different. But for someone to be able to donate their organs, special considerations, you have to have died in an intensive care unit on mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. So they're the criteria. Um, and also with no damage to those organs, as you discussed earlier, that makes that person medically suitable to donate. So organ de- it's such a rare event that, you know, that when there's the opportunity that is offered to the family at the time after death has been declared and that family understand that they have lost their loved one um, and when there's no more hope for that family. So for a family at that, at that point in ICU, then and only then is the uh, the discussion of organ donation brought up. 
So our specialist doctors and nurses who care for people in ICU have that very sensitive conversation with families. Some families have never talked about organ donation and that is probably the worst Mm-hmm. case scenario because this family is left thinking, am I going to make the right decision for my loved one because I don't know what they wanted, they never talked about it. And then there are the families who have had that discussion with their, that family member, they've signed on to the Australian Organ Donor Register and they've said, well, this is what they want, we know, they told us and they've registered. So those conversations, they're still not easy but it's one less decision that a grieving family needs to make at that mm-hmm. terrible time. So I guess in our um, message to the community is whatever your donation decision is, whether it's yes or no, we have an Australian organ donor register managed by Medicare. That's all this register does. It records your decision. It takes 60 seconds to jump online on the Donate Life website, make a decision. But once you've done that, you've got to tell someone you love that you've Mm -hmm. done that. And that's, I guess, the the second part of signing on to the register because we know families, you know, our research tells us and we do actually survey our donor families in the past and ask them what their experience was like in intensive care, what it was like to be a donor family. Did we provide you with the best service we possibly could? Because we need to learn from our families as well to see what better service we can Mm -hmm. provide for them. And then ask them, you know, whether donation was a comfort to them. And I can tell you over 90% of families have said that being able to help other people and honouring the wish of their loved one gave them some comfort. So for us, that's, you know, evidence-based research. And plus, you know, our families aren't just donor families on the night. They're our donor families and Donate Life forever. So, you know, we make sure we keep in contact with them. Mm -hmm. Um, We invite them to our service of remembrance every year to honour and commemorate their loved one and the gift they gave to the community. Mm. We've had 30 years of services of remembrance. So it's been... It's, it's been a journey um, mm. to engage the community, to understand the benefits and how many, you know, how life-saving organ donation can be. And, I, and, I, and as a, looking after an organ donation agency and donor families, I don't get very often to sit in front of a couple like Anna and, and Ken oh, and then. listen to their story yeah. because, you know, we, we look after donors and their families mm-hmm. and the transplant units look after people like Ken and Anna. So I yeah. don't get to do this. So we don't actually get to see the people who... The impact. Yeah, the impact. And and I guess from my experience, sitting with donor families at that really terrible time in ICU is taking the conversation slow, giving them information if they've never discussed it because families need to know what donation would mean for their loved one what it would mean for their family. Mm-hmm. So we give that them that information so they can make an informed decision if they didn't know what their loved one wanted and then we will carry out whatever that decision is that the family makes and we respect that decision. But we want families to make a decision that is based on good information, which is why our nurses and doctors are well trained and they can answer any question about organ and tissue donation. So that's what, you know, it takes a while. This isn't just a quick conversation. This is, you know, time we need to sit down with the family once they've been told that their loved one has died um, and they're still on mechanical ventilation Mm -hmm. in the ICU and give them time as a family because they need to plan and do things too. Just like, you know, Ken and Anna were saying, we've got four kids at home we still need Mm -hmm. to look after. Donor families still have that as well. You know, what are their needs at this moment? We have to care for all of their physical needs as well as their emotional needs before they can actually make that decision it's a massive to donate. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not an easy conversation. No, yeah. But for fam for, for families who have had that conversation, I can tell you from my own experience that 
they com- families are comfortable saying, we know what they wanted and mm. this is what they wanted and how do we do this? And then we just support them through the process. So, and it is, you know, it's a, it is a process. Donation is a process, but it's never a consideration until death has actually occurred. Mm. And so I think um, another thing, well, obviously we want everyone to sort of think about having those those conversations before it gets to that point. Mm. Like let's let's try and have a think about whether or not we want to register. You said it takes 60 seconds. Mm. It's so easy. And then once you've done it, let your family know. Like maybe, guys, when you're listening to this, have a think about whether it's something that you want to do. Log on, register, and then at your next family whatever, have a discussion amongst yourselves. Open up the conversation. And I I think with teenagers especially as well, because obviously we now have two Mm. teenagers. Mm -hmm. They've been through this. They've seen this from, you know, before they were teenagers. But it's until we were thrown into this, we never had a conversation. We didn't open up the conversation. My mum didn't have a conversation with me. Our family, we didn't have a conversation. Mm. We didn't need, there was no need at the time for any of us to have a conversation. We Mm. didn't, you know. So it's not until you get thrown into this, Mm. you know, world of, well, I need a donation because my son's not going to live without one, that it opens it up and it's opened it up just not for us but for everyone that we know because they know Thomas's story and people not just here in Australia, people all over the world that we know Mm. have made sure they're now organ donations because of Thomas Mm. and if we hadn't known, if we hadn't gone through this, I don't think we would have even thought about it. Mm. So now, you know, it's it's opening up that conversation much sooner and even maybe bringing it into schools, you know, Mm. as Finishing we years. do do, yeah. we do do school education yeah. on organ donation. Yeah. So it's a proactive yeah. approach, not a reactive mm. approach. Yeah. And again, for me, it, it was it was Troy, um, mm. the paramedic who who he opened this up for me. I'd mm. never considered it, and then I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity to to open it up further. You yeah. know, and um, so Tina, what what are the, some statistics of um, organ donation in in Australia? Oh, uh, just as I mentioned before, there yeah. was, I think, 460, 463 people mm-hmm. donated organs and they um, helped save the lives of 1,270 transplant Isn't recipients. That amazing? I know. And it's, it, look, it sounds like a small number, but yeah. when you think about the special circumstances of which people can donate, mm. and that's why it's important for everyone to make a decision, um, you know, um, because not all of us will be in the position where we can donate mm-hmm. organs yeah. uh, for transplantation. And I did mention briefly before tissue donation because people often don't think tissue donation is as important as organ donation. And tissue donation means the corneas of eyes. They can give the sight to two people. Mm-hmm. Heart tissue is, is predominantly 80% used in babies born with heart defects. So heart valves and heart tissue Bone tissue is used for people who have um, can have uh, malignancies of long limbs and they use that bone tissue or hip replacements. And skin tissue is life-saving for people who have burns. And tissue is different to organs in the way that to be an organ donor, when we're talking about our heart, our lungs and liver and kidneys, means that those organs need to have an oxygenated blood supply, which is why being on a ventilator when the patient is declared brain dead, which means death has occurred, the ventilator keeps those organs oxygenated Mm -hmm. because without oxygen they won't survive. But tissues are different. They don't require a blood supply to actually Mm -hmm. work. So tissues can be retrieved 24 hours after the person's heart has stopped beating Mm -hmm. because they won't, and they also don't require immunosuppressive drugs like the organ recipients do. 
But, you know, tissue donation can save, gee, 15, 20 people just through the Isn't sheer that fact that you can um, help people. So it's whilst organ donation only happens in ICU, tissue donation can happen outside of an ICU unit as well because, you know, they can be retrieved up to 24 hours after the person's wow. heart has stopped. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Do you, sorry if you've already mentioned this, but do you have any um, data on how many people are waiting for an organ donation? There are about 1,800 people in Australia who are waiting for organ transplants. And there's about another 13,000 who are on dialysis. Wow. And mm. so do you know how many people are on have, have registered? Do you have a statistic for that? Um, I'm not quite sure of the – it's probably about a third, 30% of Australians have registered okay. on the Australian Organ Donor Register. Yeah, we can get that number way up, guys. We need Let's to. Go. We need to. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so I think something that uh, paramedics would be interested in, and we've discussed this personally, but I just wanted mm. to, to bring it up on here. So as paramedics pre-hospitally, is there anything more that we can do? I know that there's no way that we can know if someone's a, an organ donor or something, but is there any suggestions on things that, that we can personally do? You know, paramedics being first responders, you do absolutely everything you could possibly do. There is not another thing more that you could do to help support organ donation. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's not something that happens or considered at the scene. It is days, sometimes weeks mm -hmm. after there's been a tragic event. So while your expertise is in giving families hope, our expertise is when there is no hope that we can save lives mm -hmm. at the other end. Mm -hmm. So for um, <clears throat> for paramedics, absolutely nothing more that you can do than just to absolutely do what you jo do so well, mm -hmm. and that is getting people to the medical mm -hmm. help that they need. Yeah, because there was a distinction that we came to um, before we, we uh, started the podcast was you guys classify death as um, brain death, whereas often we, our, our, mm. um, when we do recognition of life extinct, it's more circulatory. sort of circulatory. Yeah, so that's an important distinction. I think, like you said, it needs to be, there's a very um, specific group of people who are in an ICU unit who mm. are, you know, tubed, who are being ventilated mm. and are oxygenating those organs rather than a, a pre-hospital person um, yeah, that, that we would encounter. Yeah. yeah. So that was interesting, um, an interesting thing for me, I think, um, that I just wanted to hone in on as well. Um, so in terms of the, the process that you guys um, had with, with Thomas and the support that you were given during that time, like how, how did you find that? Was that quite, like did you find that you had all the information and, and that things, um, I guess, rolled for you in a way that you felt supported? Like I just wanted to delve into that a little bit more. Like how was that for you guys? Well, because uh, Anna, um, we looked after the children mm. um, back home. Mm. Like I, I spent most of the time at, in, in the hospital and the, the staff there in Piku, honestly, I I, I didn't f – it was just fan, it was a, a, a fantastic experience mm. for me. The staff were all fantastic, mm. but they, they made, me, made me feel like good type of thing, you know. They always really informed you of what was happening, like yeah. they yeah, you know, every step of the way. But the support came, you know, made a lot of the – obviously Thomas had his, you know, team, but for us – especially for me having the other four to juggle, you had all your people behind the scenes as well, like your social workers and then, mm. you know, um, 
the kindy, we, you know, we could, I could dump and run. I just, five days a week, I was dropping everyone off at the kindy, catching a train up to Brisbane, spending four or five hours up at the hospital, then catching the train home, picking all the kids up from kindy. And I was doing that for what, five months. And then weekends, we'd sometimes take all the kids up there. Every time we walked into the hospital, into the, into the, his room, um, it didn't matter who was on, that the, the staff and the team up there were just incredible, always telling you, making sure you were informed, mm. making sure you knew exactly what was happening. Mm-hmm. Even though some days it was so much and you couldn't even take it all in, they need you know they always let you know every step of the way. I was, I'd get phone calls sometimes from some of the nurses just to say, look, just signing off for the night because, um, you know, they were finishing just to let you know he's had a good day, this and this, because sometimes I wouldn't hear from him because he'd be so involved with obviously trying to just be at Thomas's bedside. And, yes, he was only three weeks old at the time, and people sometimes say to us, he wouldn't know if you were there or not. And I was like, it was to us, it was so important to mm. always have someone there for him because we knew, mm. you know, later on we we were the ones that would be like, no, we we knew someone was always there supporting him Um and, you know, we'd sit and watch the nurses sometimes in those 12-hour shifts, especially in the beginning, and we didn't know how they did it, honestly. Some of the, the well, stuff never, that never happened, sat, yeah, they, they, never never, they didn't down, sit down. Back into you, back into you, back into you, back into you. You know, monitoring every single little dial, did you know, display. But at the same time, yeah. always making sure we knew what was happening. Yeah. And making sure that we were happy with what was going on and any questions and mm. um, and again the social the um, the social social uh, services guys, you know, always making sure that if there was anything we needed extra support and um, they they couldn't have been more supportive. <laughs> like they were incredible, and we still were in contact with a few of the people up there because they were a really they were there in a really important part of our life but also the worst time of our life mm, you know it was something we never thought we'd ever go through never dreamt I mean I suppose you don't but you never get never dream of being thrown into such a you know horrific time and then but these were literally just these incredible people that just had a you know support regardless of what was happening they supported us and mm. our, and the other kids as well it was really important for us it was all to make sure the other kids understood even though at the time our now five-year-old William was only two it was also being very careful on how we introduced him to the hospital room and mm. you know and and making sure all the kids were really supported and and understood what was happening so yeah it was it was a really really horrendous time for us but also it was a, an incredible experience to go through with an amazing team um, and as a family because you know we've come out of it well, number six has arrived, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> she's two and a half and a force to be reckoned with. And um, so, yeah. So what, what would you want to tell listeners about organ donation? Like what would be, if you could have one message to tell everybody, what would it be? Think of the people you're helping survive. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's a personal choice for everyone. It it's, is, but um, as as was said before, you're never going to lose that that piece of the person who's who's gone. You you know somewhere that they're still out there. They're still living they, on. Yeah, they, they, just you know, and, and like anything, that 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 person who, who died to give us the gift, they've gone. 
but they haven't. You know, there's always going to be a bit in Thomas and whoever else they've saved. And you can just, you, that makes you feel better. Mm. You know, I was contacted by a family that we we know from school. My daughter, Our oldest daughter went to school with their son. They lost their two-year-old to drowning. She reached out to me because her daughter went on to donate her organs. Um, and the reason she re- reached out was not to be say, you know, her daughter was a don- organ donor, but she wanted to contact and be in contact with a family that have been recipients because mm-hmm. they don't get to do that. They don't get to meet the recipient family. And she said even though that her obviously knowing because her little daughter died a few months before Thomas's whole process, um, so we know it wasn't a direct, she had nothing to do with Thomas surviving. But for her, she needed to reach out and speak to just a recipient parent to get our perspective. And obviously that and that was after the interview we did last year for Sunrise. Um, and she just was thanking us, saying that, you know, there's it was comfort for her to reach out to a recipient family. So on that, Tina, um, I think we were discussing before, although there is confidentiality, et cetera, around a donor and a recipient, you did say that families are able to send um, correspondence to you guys and then you sort of de-identify it and are able to pass that on. I think that is just so beautiful. And and that's a service we've been providing for many, many years. Mm. Um, And that's great because recipients can actually write anything they like except that it's not identifying or their date of their, you know, sort of information that might... Uh, be able to identify that to the mm-hmm. family, but they tell them about you know how in the difference it's made to their life, and that's what donor families love to hear because mm-hmm. it's their acknowledgement of you know we made the right decision, we've you mm-hmm. know helped saves other people's lives, and those letters are very very comforting. Mm-hmm. And the reverse is also um, available because the donor families can write back to the recipients. They don't always write back. Just mm-hmm. having received that letter mm-hmm. is enough, but some families do like to write back and they come through our Donate Life office, both the recipient letters and the donor family mm-hmm. letters, and we're the conduit to actually make sure they go to the to the people um, and they receive them in a timely way. Excellent. And so just, Tina, what are some, some messages that you would like to give to our listeners um, about organ donation and Donate Life? Like what's some education that you'd like to... Relay. Well, I would just like to say th- thank you to the paramedics. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're an amazing group of health professionals and you are linked to us in some way, not at the time, of course, but later down the track. But um, your role is incredibly important, not only to you know the community, but also organ donation in an indirect way. But I actually wanted to acknowledge Troy because um, he had the courage to come and tell his story. It mm-hmm. is not easy Mm-mm. to relive the moments of when you lose your child or, you know, if, if someone else has lost a partner, it's not easy to do. But he did that um, because he wanted to share, not just with his colleagues, but, you know, to, uh, share what happened to him and how the decision they made as a family did help save the lives of five people. So it's not an easy thing to do. And I wanted just to acknowledge Troy for sharing that with his colleagues because mm-hmm. I think that was really valuable. Um, and just for education community, we always say just to make a decision, find the information out about donation. Is it right for you? Is it not right for you? Whatever your decision is, 60 seconds, donatelife.gov.au, go to the website, make a decision and then tell your family what you've done. Mm-hmm. And that's what we tell everyone to do because we don't want families learning what donation means 
in an ICU at the worst moment of their lives. That is not the time to be doing education. So that's why that conversation beforehand is so important. So it's one less decision a family has to yeah. make and can give them some comfort. Yeah, and that's the message I want to give out today, guys. Just have hop onto the, the website, decide what you want to do and then have a conversation and spread the word. Mm. Let's spread the word and let's let's increase the awareness and be proactive. Yeah, so thank oh, you yeah. everybody for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think it was a really good discussion and two sides to, to the same coin, you know, like having talking to a, a recipient family and obviously having Troy in who was a, a donor family and Tina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.